Hello, and welcome to Unseen Being, our monthly show where we talk to artists, scientists, and each other about what the hell is happening inside our brains and bodies when we experience the world around us. We explore some of the intangible and overlooked experiences that contribute to the way we feel. What happens at the center of our experiences when we listen to music, walk in nature, sit on our phones, make morning coffees, zone out and get into the flow, or simply dance around the room. All of these tiny micro experiences contribute to the way we feel, act and behave. So in this podcast, we take you on a mini journey of self-discovery, exploration, and feed your curiosity about some of the most overlooked yet instrumental elements that contribute to your well-being. Consider this an audio handbook curated by artists, scientists, philosophers, and technologists, a critical guide to understanding the well-being of experience in the current age. We bring you the latest in scientific discoveries, but cut the academic jargon and help enhance your understanding of the way everyday experiences impact you, and potentially an understanding of some of the tiny changes you can make to improve the way you feel. We are Robin and Catherine. And together we're the founders of Kindest Studios, a creative science studio that explores the aesthetics of human experience. We look at the neuroscience of art's impact on well-being and human connection, and believe that connection to self, others, and the environment is fundamental to human experience. Before we kick off today's episode, we invite you to find yourself in a safe and comfortable position. Perhaps closing your eyes might help draw focus. And just see for a second if you can feel your heart beating within your chest or perhaps the pulse on your wrist. Can you feel and count your heartbeats without moving your hands? Do you think you can count those pulsations with any sort of accuracy? So today's episode is all about the underdog of our senses. We perceive the world through our body, yet to date we've placed a heavy focus on the sensing of our external environment, that is, the five senses which all live outside of our bodies. But today, we take you on a journey inside the hidden sense within your body, something that actually is shown to shape our well-being. Today's episode is all about interoception. Yes, interoception. And most people have never heard of it, but mark our words, this time next year, I'm certain you will have. So in short, it's our ability to sense, feel and interpret the inner sensations within our body. So your heartbeat, as Robin just demonstrated, but even things like the rumbling of your stomach and things like the feeling that you need to pee. And that exercise we just did, trying to feel your heartbeat, is one of the most sort of common ways to measure your interoceptability. But it's not easy, so don't worry if you couldn't feel a thing, because it's not something we're naturally taught to do, but it's something that we can learn to do, and that's incredibly important. So today we'll cover this, well, almost hidden sense that shapes so much of how we feel, the emotions we experience and understand, and leads the decisions we make. And as always, we've got some brilliant interdisciplinary minds with us here today. Dr. Jenny Murphy is a leading interoception researcher at Royal Holloway University, and Salome Bazin, award-winning creative and founder of Cellule Design Studio. So let us start, as we like to, at the beginning. So uh, what is interoception? You know, Catherine gave us the, the brief overview, but as we said, it's the science of how we sense ourselves from within, including all of these internal body sensations. It includes the sensing and integration and regulation of these, these physiological signals that happen automatically, often without our conscious awareness. And these internal sense organs, they communicate with the body all the time. They're in this constant two-way conversation and dialogue, and all of this biological information from our bodies flows to the brain, often even barely perceptible. 
The brain then interprets those signals and tells us when we are experiencing, for example, fear, pain, thirst, the urge to go to the bathroom, as well as many other sensations that influence our emotions. So for example, if you notice your mouth is dry, your brain may register thirst. If your stomach growls and you feel lightheaded, your brain may register hunger. Once you recognize those as thirst or hunger, you act on it and then you get something to eat or drink and the feeling of thirst or hunger goes away and that is your interoception at work. <laughs> Which some of us are very good at and some of us struggle a bit. Um, I mean, actually, children is a great example because little kids often mistake sort of hunger and stomach ache for worry. And that's something we're going to discuss because what we've found is that not only has there been a huge surge of interest in interoception in the neuroscience world, I think it's about a six-fold increase in interoception research in the past decade, but the results of this research are really transforming the vision of who we are and how we interpret and understand our emotions and what makes us us, our sense of self. And what's interesting is that we've seen that sort of inability or dysregulation or disruption of this interoceptive sense is actually the root cause of many mental disorders, which we'll explore a bit later on. But, Robin, how does it work? Well, we already told you a little bit about this two-way communication system, but basically it's pretty important to recognize that it involves all the core regions of our regulatory system. Our nervous system, via the brainstem, sends these messages to our brain. And I guess the, the takeaway here is the part of the brain is called the anterior insula. And this is really the home of interoception in the brain. And it's the part of our brain that allows us to assess, what is this like for me? So, so anytime we experience kind of an external stimulus, there'll be other parts of our brain that recognize that external part of it. But then you have that internal processing that says, what is this for me? How do I actually feel about that? And that is the interoception in your brain. But to share a little bit more with us now is probably a good opportunity to introduce you to our first guest, interoception researcher, Dr. Jenny Murphy. My name is Dr. Jenny Murphy and I'm a lecturer at uh, the Department of Psychology at Royal Holloway University of London and my research focuses on all different aspects of interception. I'm particularly interested in how we measure interception and also in individual differences in interception and their relationship to mental health. So as Jenny said, some of her work focuses on the measurement of interoception itself, and we're not going to go into too many of the details here with you today, but it's quite an interesting point because the jury is very much still out on how we can accurately measure interoception. Obviously, it's a very subjective experience that happens within our internal bodies, not the easiest to measure. Uh, so Jenny will take us through a little bit more about the differences between things like interoceptive accuracy, the ability the ability to accurately perceive the internal sensations going on in your body versus the awareness of them, having the sense of what they are, but perhaps misinterpreting them or having over or under confidence about what those sensations mean to you. In terms of accuracy, so we're talking about how objectively accurate you are on perceiving uh, internal signals. So the classic example of this is the heartbeat counting task count your heartbeats uh, without monitoring it using your hands and we'll record your heartbeats at the same time and then we'll compare the difference between how many you counted to how many actually occurred to determine whether you're accurate or not. So that's kind of the classic example of what interceptive accuracy is. Where people focus on interceptive awareness is kind of this umbrella term for describing um, the relationship between your beliefs regarding your interceptive ability and your actual interceptive ability. So if I think I'm really good at interception, I think I'm awesome, but I'm actually really rubbish, I would not have very good interceptive awareness, right? But if I'm okay at an interceptive accuracy task and I think I'm okay at it, I would have good interceptive awareness. You're not going to use your internal signals if you don't think you're very good at them. So if your model of your world is that you're rubbish <laughs> at uh, perceiving internal signals, then you're not going to use them because you think you're rubbish at it. And vice versa, if you are really, really bad at interceptive accuracy, but you think you're really good, you're going to be relying on these signals that you're actually 
really rubbish at perceiving. So I think that definitely this kind of um, interceptive awareness might feed into one's kind of propensity to use internal signals. You're kind of the likelihood that you're going to rely on internal signals in your everyday life to kind of be guiding your behavior and such. The amount of attention that you pay to your internal signals isn't has nothing to do with your accuracy. I can be like, I'm really winning the toilet. I'm paying attention to it. I've got to go to the loo. Oh, my goodness. Go to the loo. And then I don't need to. So I'm obviously paying. I have high attention to that internal bodily sensation of needing a wee. But then when I go to the toilet, I don't need one. So my accuracy is very, very low. This is sort of the story of my life because the minute I go anywhere, I'm about to do any sort of trip, I suddenly think I need the loo uh, because I worry that I might not be able to find the loo on the way. And actually, it's a really good example of really bad interceptive accuracy. Um, and normally, I don't need the loo at all. Uh, so, <laughs> but I'm sure we all got to know Catherine a little bit deeper there. <laughs> I'm sure it's something we've all shared. So often we forget in neuroscience about our bodies, although now research is starting to take that that into into consideration. And, you know, one of our previous episodes was on embodiment, and it's something that Rob and I are really interested in and do a lot of research on, the way that our minds and bodies interlinked in our perception of reality, as well as our appraisal of it. You know, our bodies are an interface with the physical world around us, but they're also fed by, by our brain, and our reality is made up from our thoughts, our attention, and also the signals that we get from around us. I suppose we commonly think of it as our intuition. And again, it's a type of cognition that we often ignore uh, or we double-guess ourselves. But actually, time and time again, the research shows us that being better tuned into that intuition gives us better decision-making skills. Now, we'll talk more about this later, but I also just want to note that interception is central to our homeostasis. What I mean by homeostasis is the need to have all the chemical and physical reactions in our bodies in balance. We need to be at a constant. The most obvious one is the constant temperature of 37 degrees, the optimum temperature for our cells to work. Go any higher and the enzymes actually unravel or, or go too low and we don't have enough energy. And now what they're realising is that interoception can be very important in keeping that balance, in keeping it in check so that we can, for example, heal better or, you know, not get physically sick. So there's this link between our body and our mind and our physical and mental health. And I think this is where interoception sits at the centre. I mean, thinking about it more broadly is that what is the purpose of interception? Why do we have it at all? <laughs> you know, at a fundamental level, throwing out kind of emotional abilities and all of these bigger terms. It's for homeostasis. It's uh, you need to have a drink of water I'm, or I'm really hungry right now and you need to feed me. That's what your body's telling, telling you. So homeostasis being this kind of search for equilibrium or balance in the body. We don't want kind of to be too full or too hungry. It's, it's telling you to, to act. Uh, to make sure that you get this kind of balance back. So interception is kind of a warning signal most of the time. It's telling you that something's wrong. And kind of if you're paying attention to kind of minor fluctuations in your body all the time, which are going to happen that are probably not alarming at all, um, that's probably not the best thing. It's, you know, you can envisage that this might uh, provoke anxiety or at least health anxiety, for example. We don't want to be focusing on kind of um, right now that as I'm speaking to you, I shouldn't be focusing on sort of how my jumper feels on, on my body. I shouldn't be fit, thinking about uh, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm thirsty. I need to be able to dampen those signals so that I can prioritise kind of the external world and, and what I'm doing at that time. We don't know what's optimal, where, where is the good level of uh, interception, but, you know, it, it's probably likely to be um, specific to the situation. You know, in some situations, it's going to be useful to have very good interception. In some situations, it's going to be useful to um, ignore those signals and kind of uh, perhaps the way that we think about interception is just, I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, isn't the best way to be thinking of this. And maybe the better way of thinking about it is how flexible you are in terms of, um, you know, uh, being able to adapt the way that you're um, responding to your body appropriately, given whatever the context is, for example. 
I really like what she says about this sort of flexibility um, and adaptation. But I suppose the question that it, that it makes me always think is that if this is just going on naturally inside me, why, why does it matter to me as an actual person, sort of walking around in my daily life? Surely my body will just do this for me, right? Well, yes and no, right? So we care about interoception because it's so core to the self. It it really makes up uniquely who we are. And if you think about it, the more you can feel what's going on inside your body, the more you can be connected to yourself. And then once you have an identity of, of what those sensations mean for you, because they mean something different for everybody, then you can have more nuanced responses to any sort of given situation. Once you kind of understand that your heart beating fast doesn't necessarily mean you need to go into a panic and, as Jenny said, perhaps catastrophize an event. And we see this with people who have high anxiety, for example, and we'll get onto that in just a minute. But people with high anxiety don't necessarily have poor interoception. They perhaps feel those internal sensations actually a lot more than an average person. But then it's the interpretation of those signals that perhaps gets missed because they overanalyze them. And so it's really important to just regularly understanding ourselves better. And the more we can do that, the more we can actually regulate our emotions. So as we said, it's really fundamental to the self. And, you know, if you're looking to respond versus react to a situation, interoception might be your key and your gateway to getting there. Okay. And I think that's something that I and probably all our listeners want to get better at, sort of acting and not reacting. So this is where it gets really interesting. Right. So we've said this a couple of times now. Interoception is really important to our mental health. Now, in our conversation with Jenny, she said, you know, we don't know which direction it goes in. We don't know if positive mental health is linked to good interoception or good interoception is linked to positive health. It's a two-way dialogue. But we are really showing that it is a key mechanism to a lot of underlying mental health conditions. And so... We've spoken about this in previous episodes, but the way that we respond to an emotion is there's a physiological reaction that happens inside our body before our brain processes that within ourselves. So our body has a sensation, then our brain ultimately reacts to that and decides and feels. So our bodies are ultimately really deciding how we feel not our brains. And so our ability to detect those sensations is really paramount. And this can be scary for some because tuning into the body, especially as we said with people with high anxiety, for example, it might be a scary thing, you know, to actually listen to your body, to to feel your heartbeat. But switching off from those sensations might lead to a sense of, for example, depersonalization or, or numbing. And we see this in people with PTSD, for example, which we'll get onto in a moment. So I would say that in terms of the link between interception and mental health, there's kind of good uh, theoretical and some empirical work uh, suggesting a link between various different aspects of um, mental health and interception. So a number of different conditions, things like eating disorders, uh, depression and anxiety, for example, even conditions like schizophrenia have been associated with uh, differences. And I guess more generally, and why a lot of people have been, as well as myself, thinking that interception might be a fundamental risk factor, or at least fundamentally associated with a number of different um, mental and physical health conditions, is because we see that uh, interception links interception to kind of fundamental cognitive domains, things like emotional abilities, reward processing, uh, decision-making, for example. And these are things that uh, seem to be these kind of higher-order cognitive processes are often seen to be atypical across a number of different um, mental health conditions. So let's get into the details of the different ways this can affect us. So research has shown that people with conditions such as autism, anxiety, depression, trauma, eating disorders, obesity toilet trading difficulties, sensory processing disorders and behavioural challenges often have poorly functioning interoceptive systems and that means that they can either be too high or too low. Right, so in mood and in anxiety disorders, which I already spoke of a little bit, they have this heightened sensibility to these interoceptive signals, but that can lead to a sense of danger or panic or catastrophizing feelings that uh, amplify things for themselves. But 
training has been shown through studies to actually reduce anxiety. And this is actually something that we found in the study that we ran earlier this year with Goldsmiths University. We specifically had participants do a breathing exercise uh, for just a five-minute trial period, and that was shown to both increase their interoceptive awareness as well as reduce their anxiety within that short window. But there's other studies which have had kind of longer-term impacts that show in a six-session experience over six weeks, it actually reduced people's anxiety. Actually, after a three-month period, they were still shown to have the same results on improving their interoception. So, you know, one person from the study kind of said, as their internal channel gets clearer, the outer channel actually gets more quiet, and you can have more awareness of what's going on recognizing that it's actually just a physical reaction rather than letting things spiral out of control. Uh, Another example of this is eating disorders. Uh, People with anorexia nervosa are also shown to have poor interoceptive awareness. And so Jenny and I spoke about this briefly, and, uh, you know, it's unclear whether the poor interoceptive awareness means these individuals kind of don't recognize the feeling of hunger, or perhaps the poor interoceptive awareness leads to a depersonalization where they kind of don't feel inside of their own bodies and as a result, don't see themselves accurately. And there's other examples. For example, autism. Um, There's a lot of research that's been done by people like Sarah Garfinkel into autism and interoception. And there is a sort of broad uh, observation that people on the autism spectrum have lower interoceptive awareness. And actually, interestingly, uh, when Garfinkel did a study looking at skin conductance response, it was orders of magnitude higher. Hold on, before you go any further, uh, maybe just explain to the listeners what skin conductance response is, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. (laughs) (laughs) So skin conductance response uh, is basically just sweating and how you respond uh, to stimuli around you. So it can be used as, as, as a measure of your sort of uh, nervous system response in your neurology. Now, what's interesting is this was this has been linked in people on the autism spectrum with uh, a lack of, of empathy. And this is something that actually has also been challenged. And I was really humbled the other day to talk to an amazing woman whose daughter did have autism. And I was discussing the sort of correlation between lack of interoception awareness and, you know, as we know that interoception awareness can be linked to empathy and therefore suggesting that potentially people with autism had low empathy. And she very vehemently corrected me and pointed out that actually I had to be very careful to use science to make broad generalizations on people and her daughter and many, many autistic people have very good empathy. Uh, What they sometimes don't have is an ability to label those emotions, um, which I can never say right, but it's a lexemia. Can you say it better, Robin? Alexithemia. You know, there are nuances within our emotional abilities and our interoceptive abilities that we have to be careful about not making generalizations uh, when we're doing this research. And while we absolutely love interoception, you know, it's, it's valid to be slightly critical as well at this point because it's early days of this research. But it's also very hopeful days of this research. We've seen um, research into PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which have shown, um, again, this decreased activation in in the right anterior insula, the region of the brain, uh, which is largely responsible for this sort of interoceptive ability. So this actually offers a pathway to therapy as well. And now we're seeing these new somatic-based treatments using interoceptive awareness training to try and actually help people with these disorders. But these mental and bodily disorders aren't really the only differences in high or low interoception. There's other individual differences as well, specifically actually between males and females. And the results here are perhaps not the ones you may have thought. I was very surprised myself in this conversation with Jenny. And uh, the evidence actually shows that females are worse at perceiving their internal sensations on interoceptive accuracy when compared to males. And it's so surprising because I think most people can relate to this, that as women, we're connected to our bodies, we're connected to our emotions, perhaps 
perhaps more than males are in terms of this rational way. That's a mass generalization, and I apologize for making such a <laughs> statement. But um, actually, Jenny said that, and she'll share with us in a moment, that actually as women, we have so much changing in our body with our menstruation system and pregnancy and menopause that perhaps there are so many fluctuations in how that we're feeling inside on a monthly and kind of over a lifetime basis that those hormonal changes actually make us less accurate at perceiving things. That's a really interesting point, and I'd love to dig deeper into this. Maybe we should do a whole other show just on this, because there's so many sort of possibilities. Another thing that I know is that, that women uh, often have higher anxiety just because they ruminate more, whereas men are, are taught more to be decisive. And, you know, when we think about interception, intuition, is it culturally that, that we sort of doubt our own intuition more? It'd be so fascinating to, to dig deeper into this. Well, uh, let's see what Jenny had to say, because this is kind of a growing interest for her. Females seem to pay more attention to their internal signals than males. So we've got a situation where females are paying lots of attention to their internal signals, maybe to try and work out what's going on because they have sort of poor accuracy at perceiving them. Um, But ultimately, given that we see these kind of sex differences in mental health, so there are a number of different sex differences in mental health where we see that uh, females, for example, experience um, uh, common mental conditions, anxiety, depression, that sort of thing, at a higher rate than males. Something that's really interested me is kind of, A, where do these differences come from? And one idea is that women's bodies simply change more, pregnancy, menstruation, menopause, and so their internal signals may be less uh, predictable. Maybe it's just that uh, females don't have as uh, clear predictions about their body and they're constantly getting these kind of prediction errors because their bodies are changing so much. Alternatively, it might be socialization. Maybe we're constantly sort of uh, using emotion terms with females and using um, kind of internal state terms with males. And so we kind of encourage uh, a more um, emotional interpretation of a change in the body state for females and a kind of more interceptive interpretation of internal states for males. Again, none of this research has been done, so it kind of remains to be seen. But certainly there is good uh, evidence of kind of these these sex differences in in interception. And it may be that they are linked to sex differences that we see in in mental health as well. And that's something that I'm quite into at the moment. Very, very interesting indeed. So I'd love to see where some of that research goes. As Catherine said, it's it's early days in the interoception wave. And so it's a really exciting time as many, many researchers are working tirelessly on some results. But there are some things that we do know in regards to how interoception affects us. And one of these aspects is emotions. And so the ability to have optimal interoceptive levels, which it's important to say, we don't, we do not know what those levels are just yet, but having optimal interoception does allow us to regulate our emotions more. As we said, emotions start in our bodies. Our bodies give signals to our brains to let us know how we're feeling. And so, for example, if you're about to talk in front of a large group of people, your body may feel a certain way. Your heart may race, your muscles may tense, your breathing may become shallow, and you may feel fluttering in your stomach. These are sensations letting you know you feel nervous. And the more interceptively accurate you are, the more you have the ability to feel those emotions. And so one study compared individuals, and they found that those with higher interoceptive awareness had a stronger reaction when watching a horror film than those who did not. And so it just means that you can kind of feel experiences more deeply and perhaps for those it might be that might be a scary thing to think about but I like to think about it as just having a more engaged experience so imagine yourself going to like an immersive exhibition do you want to actually kind of experience it and just kind of observe the exhibition or do you want to feel like the whole multi-sensory nature of it within your whole being and we do know that the more you can feel things deeply the more emotionally moved you are the more meaningful of an experience you can have and so while it might be scary to some to feel things 
things more deeply. If we can begin to pull apart those sensations a little bit more, not be afraid of them, we can actually have kind of more enhanced living and the ability to regulate our emotional control. And Jenny tells us a little bit more about those emotions. You need to have a change in your body's state and recognize a change in your body's state to experience an emotion. <laughs> yeah? So there needs to be that change. And usually it's the context of what's going on that determines whether you ascribe kind of um, which emotion you're ascribing to that. So I, I feel kind of sweaty and my heart's beating really fast. Okay, I'm about to give a talk. I feel nervous. Okay, that's how I'm going to label that. I feel exactly the same and I'm about to get on a plane to go on holiday. I feel excited. So same bodily signals, but different contexts. And so that most theories of emotions will suggest that you've got the internal bodily state change, something is going on in your body, and then you've also got the context, and that is kind of what determines whether you're experiencing an emotion or not. And I would say that most um, people and most data evidence fits with this idea that people who have better accuracy of perceiving their internal signals seem to be more in tune uh, with their emotions. Now, the other interesting bit here is about cognition. And Catherine mentioned this previously about kind of having that sense of intuition within your body. And what we do know is that emotions that start in our body actually influence the actions we take. And so there's quite a famous theory from a scientist called Antonio Damasio, and it's called the somatic marker hypothesis. And perhaps this quite fundamental theory is the foundation of all inter reception research today. And it says that these internal sensations within our bodies, these emotions that we feel, turn into feelings when they translate to our brain. And then those actually have an impact on how we act and the decisions that we make. You know, regardless of whether we want to or not, our emotions do influence how we behave. And so if thinking about intuition, which starts in your gut, which we have learned is connected to our interoceptive sense, our ability to actually feel that more will allow us to make more informed decisions, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of my favorite studies was a study on people who had had the sort of more emotional parts of their brain, sort of the amygdala, slightly uh, disrupted. And without emotions, they actually weren't able to make any decisions at all. They couldn't even decide what to have for breakfast, you know, which shows that, Yes, while while the amygdala and, and these emotion parts of our brain can can get overwhelmed and, and take too much control, actually when there's a healthy balance between our emotions and our more rational thought, that's when we make the best decisions. You know, and, and that, that extends beyond just our, our own emotions and, and to empathy and the emotions of others. Um, studies have shown that shared neural networks in empathy and interoception, so it sort of highlights the ability to detect our own emotions that can also help us sense emotions in others, which sort of makes makes sense right because emotions create feelings in our body and in the same way these feelings create emotions so if, if I start to hyperventilate I start to panic if someone sees that they often start to, to breathe faster too because we often mirror people and they start to panic so you know we mirror people physically as well as emotionally and I think it's really interesting because we said, you know, interoception is the ability to ultimately feel into yourself, right? And I think it's quite interesting that the more I can feel into myself, the more ability I have to, to feel into others and experience empathy for them. Yeah, absolutely. For them? With them? Ooh, for them. Do I have empathy for you, empathy with you? I think for. I think for you. <laughs> Your mom's a English teacher, <laughs> English right? Teacher, so yeah, she can... and she'll be listening. So, so just send me a text, mom, and let me know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, anyway, back to the studies about about interoception and empathy. And just as you were saying, you know, empathy is physical as well as emotional. And which brings us back to sort of this amazing research that's going on right now in places like Sussex and Hugo Critchley's lab, looking at how we physically have empathy as, as well as emotionally. And we saw a great study of people watching a firewalking ritual in Spain was that the person's heart rate when they're running across the coals was actually mirrored by their partners who were watching from the audience. So we have this physical empathy. And I know, you know, our last episode was on synchrony, which explored this and its topic we love, but all these different topics interlink. We're going to get onto some ways in which you can increase your interoceptive ability in a second. But before we do so, Robin, what stands in the way of, of high interoception? 
Right. Well, for one, these bodily signals aren't always clear, right? We don't always know what they mean. And often they're the accumulation of of multiple things happening at one time that our body is processing at once. The second thing is that our brains are effectively constantly predicting future outcomes of situations based on our past experiences. We are computers, okay? We're a computer. (laughs) Super computers. (laughs) But when those outcomes don't match our expectations of what we thought would happen, that results in a surprise. And that surprise throws off our body's balance. It throws off that homeostasis that we spoke of at the beginning. And that is something called prediction error. It's when we predict when we predict the wrong thing to happen. So ever heard of, you know, don't be tied to outcomes, don't have expectations, and then you'll never be disappointed? Well, this is actually the science to back that. This updating of the world is so valuable to us to be these sort of agile, adaptive beings that we can be. And Again, it's something that in in the modern world we're not very good at at dealing with. Um, We often get sort of stuck and limited in our behaviour. So I think it's really important to to know that, you know, we're often battling a body that wants to stay in a very particular range and stay safe um, with also wanting to sort of expand our worldview. So how do we overcome this? First one is to, you know, adjust our beliefs. So minimise our expectations. And this is all linked into being open-minded and being able to be comfortable with prediction error and when things don't go quite as planned and using that moment to open up, absorb more information and update our worldview. And so the second one is actually to engage in more actions that allow us to have a wider set of experiences. You know, it's a great thing they say, violate your stereotypes. Go and be with people who actually dislike you because they'll they'll help you broaden your worldview. And that's why Catherine and I hang out so much. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's true and it's so brilliant. Um, <laughs> But it really does does help you be open-minded, and that's one of the most powerful tools that, that you have as, as a human being. And I think this is actually so interesting because one of the, the bits that I really love about science is, is drawing on the similarities between the rational science and kind of Eastern contemplative practices. And if you go to any sort of spiritual teacher, they'll tell you to not be tied to outcomes, be open-minded, accept things as they come. And there's actually no science to, to prove all of this to be true. And prediction error happens across a n- number of situations, but it is quite important to interception. So just remember, when something doesn't go your way, it's probably for a reason and it's all for the best. And when something doesn't happen that way, just think to yourself, mm, I'm updating my prediction error <laughs> and increasing my interception. But there are also many other ways to kind of in increase or improve our interoception. And I think it's probably important for us to understand some of those behavioral interventions that people can actually start to use in their everyday lives. And as we like to do, we really like to to include creative examples of maybe uh, designs or artistic works that also kind of help improve these aspects to our well-being. So our second guest as we said at the beginning of the show, is Salome Bazin. She is doing incredibly creative work to uh, launch technologies and experiences to help, well, people sense their bodies and health interventions in new ways. And so we'll let Salome introduce herself. So I'm Salome Bazin. I am a French designer and artist and the founder of a company called Cellule Studio. So we are a design agency uh, working in experiential design, experiential art. I don't know if you know uh, that word, that new fancy word in the design scene. Um, We work mostly envisioning the future of healthcare and the future of bodies. Um, What that means is we work with a lot of scientists, uh, developing new interactive artwork to engage audiences around their health and bodies, and also trying to project what the future could look like for health. One of our favourite of Salome's projects is called Echoes. It's an app that actually allows you to listen and record your own heart sounds. It's such a simple and effective use of technology that provides a novel experience. You know, most people have never been able to to experience their heart sounds in that way. So she told us a bit more about it. So Echoes uh, is a new app that listens to your heart sounds 
And it started from a scientific question from our partners at King's College London and Maastricht University. Can we use phones microphone in order to listen to our hearts? And why did I want to do that? It's because historically, of course, cardiologists would use a stethoscope. There's so much they can know from the sound of a heart. In parallel, at Cellular Studio, we've had several projects where we're really interested in heart sounds as a way to draw people into their own body. And I mean, of course, you know, everyone has heard it. You've heard it beating if you're just lying on your on your mom's belly. You know, it's such it's such a signifier of our humanity. And I think we've done quite a lot of work with children, actually, with heart conditions and how we could create a new way for them to relate to their heart that was not just about disease. So Echoes is a new app that is recording your heart sounds. Uh, it's then creating a history of those sounds that you can listen, rename, share to your friends. And it's really what we just, we want this to become the Spotify of cardiology, right? So that at the end of the day, this to be connected with musical creation apps and how can we use your BPM to learn about uh, your rate variability and understand uh, the impact of meditation, yoga, all sorts of things. So... From my end, I want this to be available to anyone interested in music creation, really. So anyone who felt it beating, had interested in rhythm, and could sort of use this historical database, whether it's personal or with someone, with your friends, so you could create your whole group orchestra by yourself, just using this piece of technology. So just like our 5-5 experience, the one where we had participants sync their breathing to a piece of artwork from Marshmallow Laser Feast, Salome's project Echoes is truly interdisciplinary. You heard her speak about this kind of two-way exchange between you know, her design work and her studio's design work and the scientists and how it really benefits both parties in, in new novel ways and, and really helps to get people thinking differently and engaging in these sciences differently as well. It's it's such an interesting dynamic, and um, so I come from the world of design, art, and fashion. So I would say that my team, the people I, I work with, are usually coming from fashion, art direction, creative technology, and and I have to say that working with scientists, surprisingly, we speak same the same language. I think so. Overall, it's been always a very beautiful learning curve because of the same curiosity and. Uh, faith in the process, I have to say, which I think science is. Um, we we've been able to to really work very very nicely together. Actually. And and then this is a question we can ask a lot by other scientists. So like, oh, what can I actually get from this? You know, what can I get from collaborating with artists? Um, I think from us, the benefit is is obviously. So myself, I I train a lot in dance uh, on the on on the side and. I, I thought I knew a lot about the human body, but of course, working with surgeons, we I just learned so much about natural phenomenon, and I feel it's constantly feeding creative concepts. Um, it's it's just an endless source of inspiration, really. And on the other side, it's interesting because scientists are asked more and more to do engagement. One one really good example was the project we've done with King's College. Um, we've done this really long partnership. Uh, with ex- an exhibition we had at the Vienna, some of the work that were going to the Venice Biennale. And what was interesting there is that no one knew where this would lead us. Uh, and I feel they thought initially we'd just make something pretty. And then more and more they would see how engaging with patients, um, audiences would make them learn so much about the human um, the human response, right, to, to this work. There's so much about psychology and trauma in healthcare that I think art can tackle a lot more effectively. What I love about Salome's work is that it really is interdisciplinary. It's a two-way knowledge transfer between sort of creatives and scientists and researchers. And as well as making creative uh, outputs and projects, it's also going to help researchers develop new types of interventions and therapy. Because more and more we're seeing somatic therapies, therapies that involve the body to help improve interoception. Even some of the more traditional therapies like CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, and ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, you know, actually can help interoception awareness. In CBT, you're learned to control your emotions, and that involves them being in the body as well. And in ACT, which is closer to sort of perhaps mindfulness and some of the ancient practices, you're actually asked to um, notice and accept 
some of those feelings in your bodies as they arise from emotions. You know, and these can help us, you know, reduce our anxiety and improve our interoceptive abilities. There's also, of course, interventions such as breath work. Of course, we love the breath. So, um, you know, if you, uh, we spoke about some of these things in our recent breath episode. If you've not had a chance, now is a pretty good opportunity to go back a couple months and listen to that, back to that episode. But kind of everybody knows that this short, shallow breathing is linked to kind of these states of panic or anxiety. And these cause our bodies to get out of balance or out of that homeostatic range, as we mentioned. And so learning to control our breathing can help shift our physiological state and then put our bodies back into balance. And so it's interesting here that we also mentioned this a couple months ago. A lot of the time, if you're in a state of panic, somebody might tell you to take a really deep breath, but actually to be able to breathe more slowly, more silently helps us actually regulate a lot more. And so being more connected to your breath just allows you to be more connected to your body and has all these knock-on interoceptive effects. Absolutely. And I think sort of, you know, the the greatest thing I learned when we were doing a lot of breath work training was about being gentle with your breath. You know, I think we think that sometimes we have to be very heavy-handed when we're learning to do all these breathwork techniques. But that gentleness, you know, you know, that slow and shallow breath is actually very powerful. You know, and it is at the basis, of course, of things like mindfulness, yoga, all these things that can help with stress reduction. And it's all about, if you think about it, for anyone who's who does any of these practices, it's about attention in the body and pulling the focus of your attention into the body, away from the sort of rumination and thoughts that cloud the mind. You're learning a language of the body. And it is a language that we can get better and better at understanding and speaking. Now, one really interesting link, of course, is exercise. And we've seen that, that athletes often have very good interoception. And that kind of makes sense because what athletes are very good at is recognizing uh, things like their heartbeat and their breathing because of course when you're when you're doing a high performance sport your heartbeat will go higher but if you're a good athlete you can control it quite well the same with your breathing yeah, and I think it's interesting to think about heart resilience, if you will. So their heart actually is more resilient because it's working harder. Uh, and that effectively has this knock-on effect about this kind of emotional resilience as well. And last but not least, one of these interoceptive tools that we can use, my personal favorite the flotation tank. Now, float research is rising in popularity as well, and it's the sense of sensory deprivation. When you turn off all of your kind of external senses, the one that we're using all of the time, the more you can actually tap into these more latent ones. And you're fully submerged. If people don't know what a flotation tank is, it's a sensory deprivation chamber where you're floating in a boatload of magnesium salts. You're just floating there and your body is kind of completely motionless. And by submerging yourself into that water, you can actually notice the sensation of your heart a lot more. Um, and it's also something that is shown to really, really reset the nervous system. And there is some preliminary data to show that a single one-hour session has a really strong antidepressant effects on patients with anxiety and depression. And while further research is needed, it is a really interesting field. So if you haven't, check out a flotation tank. They've changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about the flotation tank because it's actually for once a use of technology that doesn't distract us or take us out of our body, but actually brings us into our body. Yeah, and we've spoken about the role of technology before in previous episodes that we have so much technology around like the quantifiable self and these, you know, these uh, abilities to measure ourselves. And there's a really fine balance between technology actually pulling us outside of our bodies by checking our watches and checking all these alerts and technology being used actually as a facilitator to draw us inside of our bodies, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of Salome's work uses technology as as does ours. And so we sort of spoke to her about how she viewed technology and, and this idea of drawing people into their bodies with it. I think what's interesting is that it really depends who is behind the control board. So a lot of the things we use are actually, you know, what's the agenda, what's the motive? So like you said, the quantified self is a really good point. A lot of these are used for control and 
just measuring really data analysis in healthcare is such a big trade and such a big sort of golden golden rush really uh, how can we how can we better extract and i think this extraction doesn't necessarily bring back something right so i i also myself got surprised how we would use technology more and more and it's it to me it's all about this listening approach so it really it really enable us to to amplify certain phenomena that we might not be aware of or we are aware of but as at a smaller level so think about all the work we're doing with heartbeats and heart rates really all we're doing is amplifying we're not changing anything and i think that's really important so the way you the way you implement it uh, we it's just a signifier it's a feedback on what's going on anyway and we just want it to be uh, just making a standing point I feel also in terms of accessibility, of course, if it's done properly and if it has the right proportion of the work. So if technology is just a mean rather than an end, uh, it can be a very democratic tool to, to allow access to knowledge and education. So this is something we're really interested in. I really like what Salome has said here about amplifying things that already exist. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about some of these technologies, things that can allow us to hear things more deeply. And if you think about what she said about echoes, it's like the modern stethoscope for the everyday person. I think that's a really cool way to think about it. You know, one thing to flag with all of this stuff is is interoception research is hugely rising in popularity, but it is generally a relatively new field of interest. And so there's so much more research to come. And as we said, there's a lot yet to be uncovered about optimal interoceptive levels within individuals and the longer term impacts of some of these interventions we mentioned. But I think it's really interesting as a point to take away from this, just understanding what interoception is. And I think most of the listeners here today would engage in some sort of exercise, mindfulness practice, breathing, or just kind of any sort of stretching in their bodies. And I think it's really cool to know that while you're engaging in those activities and behaviors, you are actually improving your interoceptive awareness. So it's always just a little bit of a pat on the back or perhaps more beneficial to understand the more um, subtle and less perceptible ways that these activities are affecting us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about sort of the things we do naturally and knowing that there's there's a sense and a point to them all. So perhaps, you know, for the rest of the day, just notice when your heartbeat gets a bit faster. Or if, like me, you suddenly think you need the loo because you're about to get on your bike and cycle sometimes. Do you really? <laughs> But it's just starting to learn the language of our bodies. And, you know, so much of our research is is about our bodies as well as our minds. And we're finally in the Western world coming back to that realisation that they're absolutely interlinked. And the same way we want to, you know, learn about our minds and and better master them, it's important to, to learn about our bodies so that we can master the world around us. So if you're going to take away one thing from this episode, it's understanding what interoception is and understanding that all of the sensations we feel all the time are actually so important and shape all of the actions and behaviors that we have. So listen to them, treat them with kindness and respect as well as yourselves. And we'll leave you with that for today. But as always, here are some tracks to play you out and enjoy the rest of your Friday afternoon. I'm